Hi there, this is Jörg Thomeyer. I'm the head of IP of the Bayer Group and you are listening to IP Fridays. Hello and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 42 of IP Fridays. Christmas is approaching and we are giving away three Christmas marks for our listeners. We will randomly choose three people who are leaving us comments on our website www.ipfridays.com or leaving us voicemail on this website. So leave us your feedback on our website and a Christmas mark can be yours. Today we have an interview with Carrie Hefty for you. Carrie is Senior Company Counsel Intellectual Property for Wells Fargo and is overseeing the global intellectual property law and IP operations. But before we jump into this interview, I will tell you a little bit about the latest news from TMView, a database operated by OHIM, and the latest decision of the enlarged boards of appeal of the European Patent Office. So Japan just joined the database TMView. If you don't know what TMView is, it is a database of trademarks operated by OHIM the European Trademark Office, basically. This database is a collection of trademark data from 51 participating offices with a total of 34.5 million trademarks in total. And the nice thing about TMView is that you can not only search for the trademarks of these offices, but you can also do a similarity search. So you can search um, you can check a box called fuzzy and then you get similar trademarks as well. So if you enter a trademark name, let's say marimba, then you will also get results uh, that might be called marimbo or something like that. So Japan just joined that trademark database. So the trademark database uh, comprises the data of all EU countries and a lot of other very interesting countries like the US, like Japan, like Korea. So if you want to do a quick check whether a trademark is available or not, a name is available or not, you can just enter it into that database and check off the and check the box fuzzy search and then you get a pretty good feeling whether a trademark name is still available or not. So if you want to use that tool, you can go to www.ipfridays.com slash similarity search, one word, ipfridays.com slash similarity search, or you can just search for TMView in Google. Then we also had something else happen this week uh, or this month um, that happens only once or twice a year. The Enlarged Boards of Appeal just published a new decision, G1-14. The decision itself dates back to 19th of November 2015 and was just published this week. So the Enlarged Boards of Appeal decided on two questions 
proposed uh, to them by the technical boards of appeal and they are both very similar so i give you one question in particular that the question was where a notice of appeal is filed but the appeal fee paid after expiry of the time limit of article 108 epc first sentence is this appeal inadmissible or deemed not to have been filed in its decision the enlarged boards of appeal really slapped the technical boards of appeal in the face um, in my point of view they basically said that the technical boards of appeal did not really read the rules of the epc correctly just for the people who are interested they said that um, Rule 126, uh, second paragraph and first paragraph, uh, old version of the EPC, only applied to registered mails uh, sent with a return receipt and not for UPS, for example, in this particular case. So the Enlarged Board of Appeal ruled that the Enlarged Board of Appeal has to deal with uh, questions posed by the technical boards of appeal according to article 112 EPC only if the technical board of appeal gives a good reason to do so so um, detailed reasoning then the enlarged board of appeal they ruled uh, has to see whether they actually have to whether it's necessary to deal with the question and therefore if the question is admissible and then lastly they ruled that if the question posed by the technical board of appeal is um, a misinterpretation of the law a decision of the enlarged board of appeal is not necessary and the question is inadmissible in comparison to other decisions of the Enlarged Board of Appeal, this is a really short and brief decision, only nine pages. So um, if you want to go ahead and read it, you can go to www.epo.org and then search for the Enlarged Board of Appeal and then type in G0001-14. That's the number of the decision g0001 slash 14. So Ken, let's see what Carrie Hefty had to say. Ralph, I am joined today by Carrie Hefty, Senior Vice President and Senior Company Counsel at Wells Fargo. Carrie is a graduate of Hamlin University and the University of Minnesota Law School. Carrie started her career with Oppenheimer, Wolf and Donnelly in 1984. She joined Norwest Bank in 1989 which merged with Wells Fargo in 1999. Welcome, Carrie, to IP Fridays. Thank you. Carrie, can you tell me about your position at Wells Fargo and some of your key responsibilities with respect to intellectual property? Sure. I am one of the attorneys in the intellectual property legal team, and the IP team handles a number of legal areas besides trademark and copyright and patents. We also handle advertising, social media, sweepstakes and contests, and privacy and publicity issues. We have seven attorneys on the IP team, four do copyright, trademark, and advertising issues, and three handle patent issues. The Wells Fargo Law Department includes almost 500 attorneys, and so wow. our little IP team 
is just a little drop in the bucket oh, of, of attorneys. Um, but we handle all the IP issues across the entire company. And as you can guess, the company is really large, 265,000 employees. Wow. And Wells Fargo is indeed global in reach. Um, how do you stay on top of all the issues? Any particular areas in the world that are currently presenting challenges or repeated issues, and how are you addressing those? Yeah, first to just explain, um, the company has 84 lines of business, mm -hmm. and each of those lines of business has a marketing team. Wow. So yeah, wrap your head around that concept. Uh -huh. um, so two of our uh, trademark copyright attorneys just divide up those 84 lines of business, and then the two other trademark and copyright attorneys handle Enterprise marketing, issues coming out of enterprise marketing, which is the top of the house marketing team, and social media issues. Mm -hmm. So social media is a big area for us right now. Um, currently, we have a social media marketing team of over 30 employees. So we yeah. are really focused on um, social media. Um, how do we keep abreast of all the issues? Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with such a little team, it, it, it is difficult. And things happen so quickly every day. Right, know? right. You know, you try to read all the um, blogs and, and uh, uh, law firm newsletters that come through. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the big ways we stay on top of, especially infringements, of course, is uh, we have global watch services mm -hmm. that send alerts if there's applications filed anywhere uh, in the world for a mark that's confusingly similar to our house marks, which right. would be, you know, Wells Fargo and the Stagecoach logo. Obviously, the Stagecoach logo, very important yes. to us. Um, and uh, the we also have the watch service for a few, just a few of the high visibility uh, marks coming out of those lines of businesses. Mm -hmm. We've had a lot of infringement activity in China over the last couple years. Um, uh, people in China actually infringing on the Wells Fargo name in English, and then also infringing on our Chinese characters that we use to mean Wells Fargo in Chinese. And if I'm pronouncing it right, Fugua. Mm -hmm. So um, we've had to go after uh, those infringers, some with success, some without much success, <laughs> but we keep, we keep trying. Mm -hmm. um, we've also had a number of interesting infringements uh, around the world. For example, about 10 years ago, we had a motorcycle club in Germany named the Wells Fargo Motorcycle Club. So, yeah, so I think, um, I think because Wells Fargo is just part of West, you know, United States history yes. and the West and the stagecoach. history here in the United States. Right, 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 right. We had the Pony Express for mm -hmm. a few years, um, the stagecoach going across the West, uh, the gold rush, all that stuff. So people think, I think all across the world, oh, well, Wells Fargo, we can just use the name. It's out there in history to use, which isn't the case. So right now we're fighting with a, an amusement park in the Isle of Wight, um, and they have a Western theme, and they have a building, and it has a Wells Fargo name on it, and they wow. have a stagecoach that they pull people around in that has Wells Fargo on the stagecoach. Mm -hmm. So that just isn't working for us from a risk perspective, mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. um, um, and then there was uh, one of our employees went to France for vacation, came back with photos of a uh, traveling arcade. So a shooting gallery that was going around at the Traveling Arcade with dozens of Wells Fargo in lights. You know, Wells Fargo all over yeah. in lights. So we had to track down the Traveling Arcade and get it that stuff. It certainly keeps you busy. It, it, you know, and it makes the job fun. Yes. It actually makes the job fun. Yeah. Now, Carrie, you recently traveled to Alicante, Spain in October uh, to take part in the Inter OHIM Industry Training Seminar on Regulated Industries. What happened at that event, and what were some of the key takeaways? 
Um, this was the 13th annual training of European Union Trademark Office Examiners, and the training was held in the OHIM offices in Alcante, Spain on October 5th. The emphasis was on uh, trademarks in regulated industries, and so we had panel members from Japan Tobacco, from Penro Ricard in the alcohol industry, and from Pfizer, representing the pharmaceutical industry, and I was obviously there for the banking industry. Trademark examiners from all 28 European Union countries attended. In the morning session, the panels, uh, panelists addressed regulations that each industry has to adhere to when selecting its trademarks. Each of the panelists ran a separate workshop in the afternoon. My takeaway was, hey, I'm not tobacco or alcohol or uh, pharmaceuticals that have many, many, many regulations that they have to adhere to when they're thinking of uh, not only their marks, but their labeling of their uh, bottles and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, tobacco packaging. Yes. And you presented on the unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts or practices regulation, or known as UDAP. What is UDAP, and why should our listeners be concerned? You know, the regulation that impacts the selection of trademarks in the banking area is UDAP, U-D-A-A-P, and it stands for Unfair, Deceptive, or Abusive Acts or Practices Regulation that was passed as part of the Dodd-Frank Act about five years ago. Mm -hmm. The CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, is one of the agencies that brings enforcement actions under the UD UDAP. The good news is that I could not find any instances where the CFPB had ever pursued a bank under a claim that a trademark that the bank was using was unfair, deceptive, or abusive to consumers. Mm -hmm. But Wells Fargo, of course, does run each of its proposed new names through the UDAP filter. Is the name deceptive? Does the name misrepresent the attributes of the product? Does the mark materially interfere with the ability of the customer to understand a term or condition of the product? If the marketing team has selected a name that doesn't pass the UDAP filter, then both the line of business attorney and the IP attorney reject the proposed new name. And what are some of the risks of violating uh, UDAP? Yeah, they're high. Um, if the CFPB thinks you violated UDAP, there, there'll be an investigation, of course, and an administrative hearing or even litigation. The monetary penalties can be high if a violation is found, up to 5000 a day for a violation or up to $25,000 a day for a reckless violation and up to a million dollars a day for knowing violations. Wow. So let's talk about how certain trademarks uh, might run afoul of UDAP. Um, first, can you tell me about the mark Save More Mortgage Loan? Um, I believe that issue was brought before you. Yeah. A, a, a marketing team member in the mortgage area actually brought this proposed new name uh, to their line of business attorneys, and it got shot down because there's no saving about a mortgage loan. Mm. If the customer is getting a mortgage loan, you might get a lower interest rate, but you're not saving money. So to name a product Save More Mortgage Loan could very well be found to be deceptive or abusive under UDAP. So Carrie, switching gears to copyright, um, you recently put together a webinar for the Copyright Clearance Center on Copyright Matters. Can you give us a brief overview of some of the issues discussed? Yeah, I'm on a little bit of a mission inside Wells Fargo and externally to uh, educate people about how easy, number one, how easy it is to infringe on somebody's copyright, and that, but once you understand copyright law, how easy it is not to infringe. So, um, uh, I tell attorney, I tell the uh, employees, link, 
you know, if, if you want to share something and it's on the internet, just give people a link. So that's, that's my big push after I educate them on the fundamentals of uh, a, a copyright law. And um, during your discussion, you raised some interesting points about companies and internal uh, copyright training for departments within the company. Can you, can you expand on that for our listeners? Yeah, this is actually kind of funny. For years, literally years, I taught the copyright infringement class, you know, how not to infringe on people's copyright, to my clients, the, co- the marketing people and the communications people. Wrong group. Those are the wrong groups. Here's the people in your company who need to know about copyright infringement, the research and development teams. They are getting all kinds of materials in every day, and they're the ones who might infringe. Um, the teams that train your employees, so the learning and development teams, they're getting training materials from outside, and they might be copying and using them without permission, so they're, they're a team that you have to get to. Um, you, you should talk to your marketing teams about photographs. That's always an issue. Uh, you can't pluck the photograph off the internet and use it, and they should know that. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, we talked uh, the other day about a circumstance uh, regarding the publication Oil Daily. Uh, what was that all about? How was it resolved, and any lessons learned from that experience? Yeah, this was the, the case where I found out, oh, it's the research areas that I need to get to and train. So we had one team member, one employee in a research area, and he was the sole subscriber to uh, the publication Oil Daily put out by Energy Intelligence. At the top of every of the uh, every one of those uh, daily newsletters, it says it has the copyright notice, and then it says unauthorized access or electronic forwarding, even for internal use, is prohibited. Notwithstanding the fact that was there, my sole subscriber forwarded this PDF, the the newsletter, daily newsletter, came in in a PDF every day. He forwarded it to everybody on his team every day. That is copyright infringement. You can't do that unless your subscription agreement says you can do that. The subscription agreement didn't say that. So how did this guy get caught? Wells Fargo audit, the internal auditors came through this guy's group, looked at this guy's computer and said, hey, I see you get the oil daily newsletter every day and you send it to everybody in your team. You better make sure you have the right to do that. And the poor guy called Energy Intelligence, the publisher, and said, hey, I'm the, I'm the subscriber and I can send this to everybody on my team, right? Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, uh, no cease and desist letter. We just got sued. We just got sued in Colorado. You can go look at the, look at the complaint. Um, and so we, had, we hired an attorney and we found out uh, that what we'd been doing and how long we'd been doing it and how much uh, that, that you get statutory damages only if you've registered the copyright and, and energy intelligence bundled, of course, bundled um, newsletters from a month or two or three and, and filed one registration. But even given that, um, the possible uh, statutory damage was very, very high, very, very high. And so when they came and they said, we'll settle for X, we, we took X because it was much lower than what the possible statutory damages might be. Um, but the, the, the thing, the takeaway is you don't think publishers are coming after copyright infringers because you don't hear about it because they all settle. Yeah. So you need to know it's out there. They're coming after companies like Wells Fargo for copyright infringement. It's just that you never see them in the, the journal articles or the blogs because they're settled and no one ever knows about them. So you need to get out there and train your attorneys, yeah, tra- not train your employees not to do this, and not training, to send. Training is very important. I mean, I would think companies need to do this regularly. Yeah. What, how often at Wells Fargo do you do training? 
Um, I added it up last year, and I trained over a thousand people. Wow. And so I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm averaging about a thousand to two. But that's a drop in the bucket, right? Two hundred sixty-five thousand. Right. Sure, it's but, a drop in the bucket. But you are definitely making a concerted yes. effort. Right? Yes, and we're we have you know there's uh, team newsletters. There's a big intranet site, so we do have articles uh, a, a lot of the time on these issues. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today here at IP Fridays and for being a valuable contributor to the program. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.